0: and the future is completely within our control.
1: We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge.
0: That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible.
1: You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Growth Show. I'm Mike Volpe, the Chief Marketing Officer at HubSpot, and I'm joined with my co-host this week, Katie Burke. And uh, today we're joined for our episode by the co-founder and CEO of the Ministry of Supply, uh, Gihan Amarsirawaradena, uh, I was close enough on that, I think. Oh, God. Yeah. I, did, I did better beforehand on the prep. Yeah,
2: So like, close and yet so I know, far away. I know,
1: I know, It's terrible. Like the two minutes of just delay between when it was implanted in my brain and whatever. So uh, in any event. So tell us, uh, tell us, what's the background of Ministry Supply? Like what exactly are you guys? It's kind of a, it's a cool sounding name, but tell us, tell us a little bit about the business and sort of how you uh, founded it.
0: Yeah. So Ministry of Supply is a performance menswear brand, and we're really setting out to create this new category that's at the intersection of taking a lot of the performance you expect out of your outdoor athletic apparel, but styling it for the office. So we really want to elevate work apparel and bring it into the twenty first century. So you know, a little bit of our background. Uh, for me, I was, I was a Boy Scout growing up in New England, and you know, g- going camping pretty much every month you start to acquire a lot of gear and my, one of my favorite things to do on the weekends was go to EMS REI look at all the different materials out there Gore-Tex Polartech um, and wanted to start actually making my own gear and so in high school started laminating uh, my own fabrics so taking Tyvek home wrap which is a, a great alternative to Gore-Tex for example it's a rip to make uh, rain jackets sleeping bags had kind of the whole gamut and it was uh, you know, from an early age I've been really interested in performance materials and how they affected me on the mountain uh, went on to work at the Sports Technology Institute where we could see how Technology was making a big impact on sports apparel, and you know, uh, having grown up in the western part of the state and, and coming to Boston for uh, for college, and I quickly realized that you, you can't get away with wearing your outdoor gear all the time, uh, especially in a more urban setting. Um, and you know, the bike ride across the bridge to campus, so I you know, quickly wanted something that that looked sharp but still performed as well as my, my running gear. Um, turned out that I wasn't the only one with that. Sort of a epiphany or a, you know a conundrum, and uh, my co-founders were actually Sloan MBA students at the same time. Who uh, my co-founder Raman was a consultant who was flying to the, the client site every every week, and uh, you know for him he's a sock guy and he hates dress socks. And you know at the end of the, of a you know fourteen hour day, his favorite thing to do is just peel those those nasty socks off. And uh, he started you know basically Googling dry fit dress socks, and it turned out. They they don't really exist. So what he ended up doing is taking um, actually gold toe sh- uh, uh, socks and Nike Dry Fit socks, cutting the soles off the Nike Dry Fit socks, and sewing them to the tops of the gold toes to k- kind of create this hybrid solution there. So uh, uh, there was you know that was a Mon story. And Kit uh, she was a, a climber herself, and you know spending a lot of time in finance, but in Boulder you sort of see how performance and a professional lifestyle intersect, and so. You know, it turned out uh, it was really interesting. We were all working on these concepts independently, and at the MIT Entrepreneurship Center, it kind of came together because uh, our, our, our professor Bill Allet, who's uh, you know he's really kind of like the godfather of uh, MIT entrepreneurship, um, he said, you know, it, it's it's kind of uh, ironic that there's uh, you know several uh, MIT fashion company startups that haven't met yet. So
1: he introduced us, and that's how we got started. Wow, that's crazy. So, tell us a little bit more about who this stuff is actually for because I feel like the the performance but office wear thing, I feel like is, is this just for like Jack Bauer or people in the CIA? Or tell us a little bit more about it. tell us a little <laughs> well, bit more about you know,
0: the customer. You know, our, our the name of our brand uh, might might uh, allude to that. so We're called the Ministry of Supply because uh, uh, if you've ever watched James Bond movies before, Q is based on this real person named Charles Fraser Smith, and uh, he designed gadgetry and clothing for the British Special Ops during World War II, and his cover was the British Ministry of Supply. So. We like to think of ourselves as, you know, Q's Labs designing gear for guys on a mission. But, uh, but yeah, you know, you know, our, our gear is very much for that. You know, it's it's sort of for the the modern, uh, you know, urban professional. It's uh, guys who, you know, uh, particularly millennials who are, you know, seeing this collision of their work and life that they they no longer define their day as, you know, their nine to five, their social life, their family life. That these things are becoming increasingly integrated, and this their clothing, is something that you know, their dress shirts in particular. And that's where we started off um, you know it was this thing that we, we we wear you know easily 14 hours a day but have come to despise and that was a clear mark that this was something that, that had to be innovated and so you know we had seen how probably the biggest innovation in the dress shirt market was uh, bricks brothers non- iron dress shirt in the 70s and since then it's still it's still cotton Oxford it's still cut and sewn and Largely, other than the fit, it's more or less what our grandfathers wore. So we thought it was, uh, you know, in need of a, a time, you know, a, a, a major innovation in that regard. So, you know, our our customer, he's he's a guy who really you know, lives an active urban lifestyle. He wants to transition between these different parts of his day with ease. Um, you know, we've seen the athleisure market start to take off, and you know, there's a whole generation that's grown up with Under Armour. They've grown up with Dry Fit you know, in their athletic lives growing up, and they have come to expect that same performance in what they wear every day. And what's been really interesting is that uh, in the past, like, seven to eight years post uh, the crash, that actually menswear has taken off, that the fact that a lot of menswear brands went online and started online, it, it meant that guys had a, a medium for actually getting into fashion and, and their own style. And so. We really see that as sort of the you know, the perfect storm for what we're creating. So um, and, and we think it's the right time because guys are looking for it.
2: And Gihan, you mentioned guys. I know your co-founder Kit modifies your button-down shirts to actually fit the female uh, figure. But basically, yeah. for, for those of us who might not be as crafty as you and your co-founders, <laughs> talk to us a little bit about you know growing also includes smart growth, right? And by yeah. focusing on the male market, you've obviously left uh, a fair contingent of the, of the workplace out. Talk to us about the decision to really focus and excel in menswear and what that might look like moving forward if you're expanding to womenswear.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's oftentimes you know a question of of not like if, but when. And for us, you know, focus was you know we wanted to make sure that we understood one market really well and that we could communicate to them in uh, you know a very you know targeted voice essentially. Um, And and that we found that you know the dress shirt in particular was a key articulated pain point um, for men, and we decided that. For the first five years of the business, we really wanted to be heads down and focus on this market to really make sure that we could own that before expanding our product line. And um, it's, it's really a matter of you know, making sure that we solve one problem at a time. And um, you know it, it's, it's something where, as a company, we believe in democratizing technology and that clothing is something that's been overlooked with that regard. Uh, and so in the, in the long view, we absolutely want to see that um, technology expand you know, beyond just menswear, but for the near term, as a small company, we just have to be laser focused on what we're creating.
1: So talk to us a little bit about sort of that focus and how that contributed to your growth. So, uh, you know, it's, it, from what I was researching, it seemed like in the early days you were reaching out to some VCs, trying to raise a little bit of money, you know, you weren't getting the best feedback from them, and then you had this super successful uh, you know, fundraiser on Kickstarter, mm-hmm. uh, which went way beyond sort of what you expected. Talk to us a little bit about the Kickstarter thing, and then I want to you know kind of riff on this sort of fundraising topic for a few minutes.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we spent our first year in product development and uh, really doing these small batches of product making about 50 to 100 shirts a month and selling them, um, kind of doing these small trunk shows at business schools and different entrepreneurship events. And uh, we were able to get a lot of feedback. We iterated the product for the first year. um, And simultaneously, we are working on this custom fiber um, that we used in our Apollo dress shirt. And so this is this material that NASA used in spacesuits. It basically regulates your, your body temperature by absorbing heat when you're too hot and releasing it back to you. Um, when you're cooling off, so you can imagine, you know, the summer here in Boston, you're taking the tea, uh, you've taken a shower at seven, and by the time you get to the office, you've already sweat through your shirt, and it's not even you know eight thirty yet. And this material is designed just to do that. You know, we we really wanted to make sure that we nailed the product, and so we spent the first year doing that. Um, and and sort of the feedback was, conceptually, this made a lot of sense to the investment community, but. Uh, from a product and and, a pain point standpoint, but we wanted to make sure that there was truly a market for it. So, uh, you know, we had raised um, about $350,000 to date um, at that point uh, in our first year in angel funding, and that really allowed us to focus on our Kickstarter campaign. And what we looked at Kickstarter for is less about um, crowdfunding per se, but rather uh, a means to really test our product on the market. You know, we set to raise three thousand dollars. Ended up raising four hundred thirty thousand dollars in a month, and for us, that was just proof positive that people wanted, uh, you know, performance in their dress shirts. But what was actually really interesting was that that expanded beyond just dress shirts. That they were looking for a system. So, we would also offered our um, our moisture wicking undershirts as well. That work in concert with our dress shirts and uh, people were buying not just the dress shirts but that whole system together and that really indicated that this wasn't just a singular product problem but rather um, you know, in need of a wardrobe solution. Now, you know, coming back to focus, you know, we did spend our first two years solely focused on dress shirts. We did create undershirts, but that was really a means to create a better experience for our dress shirts. Um, and so, you know, we really focused on making sure that we nailed the fit. Um, there were definitely some problems along the way, um, but we had an amazing community that stuck with us. They really believed in, um, you know, what we were trying to create. I think that's one of the great things about. Um, the crowdfunding community and Kickstarter in particular is that it's one that, uh, it's a group of early adopters and ones that really value technology and design. And those are you know two of our core tenants here at Ministry of Supply. So the Kickstarter community has been one that, they were the catalyst for our brand and we're extremely thankful that they support us then and have continued to support us. And they've been some of our best advocates and and also our field testers, so helping us continually iterate and improve our product. You You know, what separates us from, perhaps, the fashion industry is that while traditional fashion's a linear design process and a style is launched, it's created for one season, and then uh, you know, a, a new style is brought the, the next you know, and three months after that, we really focus on these longer product cycles where we're constantly iterating and, and perfecting these, these single products. And our, our community has stuck with us, and what's great is because they're early adopters, they get involved early, they test the product, give us the feedback, um, and they also stick around to see how we improve it. Um, over the course of a year or so. So it's something where um, we think that crowdfunding is not just a means for raising capital, but for jumpstarting an amazing customer base. So um, from our first campaign, we had just shy of 3,000 customers. Um, and you know, they, they say that it takes usually about 10,000 customers before you get that critical mass to, to really start moving. And by having even that 3,000, that was a huge step forward for us.
1: How did you think about just staying the momentum that you created during that launch and sort of taking that to the next level? Like, was there any things that you did with those customers sort of after the Kickstarter campaign was complete? Or what? Would, how did you sort of take that as this really big early success and kind of grow from there?
0: Yeah, you know, that, that's interesting because we, um, while, while it was really exciting to see that number go up and up on our campaign, um, it, in retrospect, it was something where, you know there was a decision point where we could have said you know let's let's actually shut down the campaign and focus on um, making sure that we can deliver these products in a time frame specified and I think uh, admittedly we, we might have been over overzealous and that was something where uh, we had a supply chain that could manufacture about 500 shirts a month in New York we need to make 8,000 shirts in a month so just scaling that was a massive challenge and um, there were some growing pains along the way so we, um, what we decided to do is, you know, after the campaign, instead of trying to uh, push our online sales, we actually um, focused solely on delivering to that, that our Kickstarter community. So, um, it didn't mean that we delivered late, but we wanted to make sure that we delivered the right product. Um, and with, with any scaling process, there there's challenges. One, one of the challenges uh, was that in shifting our manufacturers, this sounds like, um, kind of like that, that Mars mission where it, it went off course because they use standard measurements instead of metric measurements. We had a kind of a similar issue where we were translating our digital uh, CAD files of our garments from one, from one system to another that our garments scaled down 5% and what that means is the, five, the garments were 5% narrower and that actually equates to a half a size. So. Well, during Kickstarter, what's great is that you're pre-ordering product, and you have a really good understanding of what, what are all the colors that your customer wants, what are the sizes, what's the exact distribution. Um, we wanted to make sure that our customers got the right size, and so um, because our products came in about a half-size small, we actually allowed everyone to exchange into the right size, but it also meant that we had to create some replacement products, and that was a um, it actually took us, you know, the better part of four months to really catch up there. So, um, you know, I just wanted to be transparent that you know this growth isn't without you know challenges. But we wanted to make sure that you know we, we had the, the great opportunity of you know, working through mass challenge. Had uh, mentorship from Brian Kalma, who was um, at Zappos at one point, and he taught us that you know when you have opportun- moments like this that um, are potentially you know. Uh, moments of discomfort for the customer that you can actually turn them around and, and delight the customer and that's what we really wanted to do um, is c- turn these early adopters into advocates for the brand so we actually sent ten dollars back um, in, in uh, Starbucks gift cards with with every order and we really made sure that you know everyone was taken care of and that they could get the right size um, and that, that was just something that you know we decided to do it meant that it was uh, you know a not as profitable as we had hoped. But um, you you have to think in the long term that this is your core customer base and one that you really want to stay with you as you grow the brand.
2: (coughs) Fantastic. We have a lot more questions about solving for the customer because I think you guys have some really interesting stuff there. But sticking on the funding route, talk to us a little bit about you guys have a unique venture capital form of funding. You've gone with angel (coughs) investing and you've also talked with Kickstarter. Give us the good, bad and the ugly of all three kind of looking back on what your experience.
0: Yeah, uh, I think. I mean, what's great about angels is that they they are often from your community, and much like the early adopters, we found that they've actually been in many cases, you know, customers of ours who are, are evangelists for our product, and that's that's amazing. Um, it, it, with with angels, um, it's definitely one where you're going to have several uh, you know conversations, um, and managing you know, a, a large group of investors is definitely a challenge, but I think you know, it's something that comes with you know, starting an early-stage company, and we're obviously very grateful for our, our angel investors today, because they're really the ones who believed in the concept from an early stage. So we had actually done three rounds of, of angel funding um, before our seed round uh, last year. Um, And in many of those cases, they were customers turned evangelists turned investors.
2: And Um, and on that front, on the angel side, I would imagine that like a great shirt, you've got to find the right fit. So talk to us a little bit about how you make sure that the angel is a good fit for you guys. And I would imagine there were some people who approached you you guys about funding that weren't a great fit. Talk to us about how you distinguish between the two.
0: Yeah, you know, we we really came down to values and what, what their outlook was. You know, we wanted someone who... Understood that we were creating a brand that this wouldn't be something that would have a you know three or four year you know payout that it's rather a eight to ten year um, you know outlook for ministry supply and just you know just looking at how brands are built that it takes that time to really gain that momentum. Um, but you know we we were fortunate to have you know several investors who had had that perspective and understood that brand building does take time and and that was really one of the gates for us. Um, it was also, you know, making sure that, uh, that the values aligned, um, you know, in terms of just how we'd hire our team members, that they would align well with our investors as well.
2: Great. And now, just getting to the venture capital side of things, mm-hmm. you have a bit of a unique structure on that side in the sense that you have almost a strategic investor and folks from Zappos. Talk to us a little bit about how that came about and how you decided to take on VC, VC funding after taking kind of an unconventional route to date.
0: Right. Um, yeah, so you know, we, we have uh, had some funding through Vegas Tech Fund, um, uh, which is a, kind of a spin-out of Tony Shea's of Zappos. And you know, one of the things there is that we, it's a, it's a, a different you know, kind of style of VC in that they're you know, focused on creating a community um, in, in Las Vegas in particular and making sure that you know, we were aligned with you know, creating, helping support the community there. Um, and, you know it, it's definitely one where it's a, a, a different route for funding you know we we came across today's tech front um, through Brian Kalma, who is actually working with Ministry of supply at an early stage and um, you know there's just a really good fit we could tell from the culture and one of the best things that we learned um, through being a uh, through the partnership there is you know how a lot, a lot of the learnings from Zappos about one, how do you create a great experience for the customer, but also um, a culture within your company that is is one that that really supports uh, you know an environment where our employees are happy as well. And so those are some of the things that you can learn from a partner that you know you might not traditionally find from you know a typical VC. So that was something we were very fortunate to have. Um, you know we're. We later raised a series eight, uh, series seed round uh, back in January of last year, and that was through um, a single family fund and uh, pretty similar uh, to our angels. It's really about making sure that there's a good fit there. Um, and what we found is that you know, in creating this this new category, you know, we're creating um, performance menswear, that we don't cleanly fit into a lot of the hypotheses. Let's say that. Um, a traditional fund might have, and so it often comes down to you know, do you believe in the product, and do you believe in, in the problem that we're solving? And so that's really what we've we've learned is that in, in telling the ministry of supply story is uh, that you know we're we're creating an innovative product in a in a radically new category that there's not going to be proxies for success in the same way, but we can create yeah we can look at analogs to show how their parts of our story are similar um, and and that's and that's something that we find it's important in our fundraising
1: and i think you're right in terms of the the breakthrough companies are always things where they don't quite fit any of the models because yeah. mm-hmm. if you fit one of the models then you're going to be kind of this nice you know average size success but the really really big successes uh, don't, don't fit any of the models. I think that exactly. we've definitely seen that pattern over and over. Talk to us about the internal side of growth. So, you know, you guys have, you guys blog and talk a lot about culture, you know, the connections to Zappos. they were very focused on their culture. Talk to us about the connection between the culture of your company and growth. And how, how do you think about those things?
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, from a, from a culture perspective, one of the things that we learned, you know, early on is, is, is establishing your values, and that values can can often you know change, and they as we have a deeper and deeper understanding of you know what what have been our best experiences as teams, when have we worked best, um, but the fact that we had values, um, you know, kind of about a year into our company, that was the, the the means for us to to really decide on who was a good fit for the company and bring the right people on board. Um, you know, right now, and one of the things that we found has worked really well internally is, well, we, we've had a book club in the company, and I, I know a lot of teams have that, but we found it, it's an amazing way for us to, uh, we're reading Good to Great right now. Obviously, uh, a, a great book about uh, kind of an analytical view on, on what are the promises of, you know, certain companies and how, how they transition from good to great. And one of the things that we found is that having these, sh- these shared thought processes and shared experiences probably the, the best thing for, for making sure that we're, we're all aligned on the same page. Um, and so, you know, our, our values have changed over the, the past couple of years, but they've gotten tighter and, and more refined. And that's, I think that's that's the key learning from us is that when when you start out, don't be hesitant to, to create a value system because you feel like you don't have the perfect one. I think it, it's more important to have a framework. First, and then you'll have a starting ground to be able to to change that.
1: I think you're totally right. I think one of the things that we found, you know, I've been at HubSpot since from five people to 800 something people, yeah. whatever we're at now, and, and it codifying our culture and sort of uh, writing down what it was mm-hmm. was super helpful to us. I don't know if you want to talk more about that, Katie, because I, like we've focused on that a lot.
2: I think that's right, and so we obviously invest significant time and resources in it. But the challenges you mentioned, Gihan, is it sounds uh, like an investment of time and energy, but it's actually pretty hard. So in, right. in this case, I always talk about the soft stuff is actually the hard stuff. And so when you're thinking about, you mentioned it was a, a good, um, sort of catalyst to see who is a good fit for your team, but also who wasn't. Talk to mm-hmm. us a little bit about some of those growing pains on the culture side. Cause I would imagine just like us, it wasn't all perfection all the time. Talk to us a little bit about some key learnings there and how you maybe communicate to people that, Hey, you may no longer be a fit for the values we've evolved to.
0: Right yeah you know um, it, it, it's it's a great learning you know for us for example um, we've had some really talented people come on board um, you know who've come from you know larger companies where uh, they were tackling you know different problems at different scales and that that's those nuances are, are what we find was really important is that there are a lot of great people out there and a lot of times our values are a function of, you know, the organizations that we were in before. Um, And we often find that the, you know, places that people worked at before are a a good indicator of how they'll function in in our team. So um, obviously like as a company that's, that's growing one of the key things is that there's a lot of uncertainty. And so that's something that we've started to evaluate even in in the hiring, uh, our onboarding, uh, processes, making sure that people are comfortable, that, that there is some uncertainty and that plans do change. Um, and,
2: and how do you actually test yeah. for that? Cause that sounds right. So it sounds like, yeah. I mean, we test for the same thing here, right? We love people right. who can roll with the punches and move really quickly and that sort of thing, but there's not sort of a good test available in the market to actually gauge that. Talk to us a little bit about how you do that in the recruiting process.
0: Yeah. You know, I, we, we often ask, you know, what, what are, um, some projects that your, your previous company had worked on, and how, to, how did your team morph to you know changes in that environment? So, um, and, and the key thing being that we're looking for people who have worked on on small teams before and have really taken ownership on on a specific part of their project. Um, and it you know the way, the way we test it, and, and you're right, there, there isn't a great test for it. I think. Um, we one of the key learnings that we've had is that we've tried to like hyper rationalize our um, our hiring process before, and what we've realized is that uh, at times, you know, one of our team members will say, you know, I just I have a gut feeling that this isn't right, and what we've kind of realized is that you know there's. You know, it's, it's respecting our, our lizard brain, right? That is able to process information way faster than perhaps our, you know, our, our more rational part of our brain. And that's something that we've, we've come to accept and realize that um, we're, we're trying to respect our gut a little bit more in that process. Um, you know, at this point, we, we don't have a good metric for that, but we oftentimes have those feelings from the questions that we've asked about how people have interacted on projects in,
1: in previous companies. Tell me about robot knitting, and are you trying to put grandmothers out of work across the country?
0: <laughs> yeah, so so robotic knitting is uh, something we're really excited about. It's um, a new manufacturing process that's akin to 3D printing, but for clothing. So um, in 3D printing, you take this, this plastic um, wire almost, and you melt it, and then you basically create this 3D structure for it. Uh, We're doing basically the same thing, but taking yarns and knitting a garment. And what's really interesting is that we can design a garment on the computer in a CAD file and actually change um, different properties of the, the fabric. So we can change the density, let's say, under the arms or in the center of the back, for example, to, to allow more airflow. We can also change the material content across the garment, so we can blend different different materials, for example. So we can have, you know, a wool exterior for a classic aesthetic aesthetic, but then also, you know, let's say, a nylon um, interior for a moisture-wicking property, for example. We can change the composition, the um, the patterning, um, all through this robotic knitting process. So what's really interesting is that you can go straight from a yarn to almost almost a complete um, garment. We, we started working on that uh, primarily with our Atlas dress socks, for example, where we had spent a lot of time uh, going through this body mapping process. And we mapped how the skin of the foot stretches where it's expelling heat and then created this special grid structure that allows heat to to be expelled through the bottom of your foot but simultaneously provides cushioning in the right areas um, and this was a very intricate design that you can't just you know use a tube sock to do that so um, using this new robotic knitting process we were able to create this pattern um, on the bottom of the foot of the, of the footbed.
1: So how uh, long until I can you know click on my phone and order a shirt or a pair of socks from you guys and then just like it gets printed at Kinko's and I walk down the street to Kinko's and just get it? <laughs> I mean, like yeah. long, long-term. Long that's kind of what you're talking no, about, right? It's,
0: it's something that you know we've. Uh, it's it's in our blue sky concepts here, but it's something where we think that that horizon's not that far out. You know, uh, I, I love going to the factories. I, I try to be pretty hands-on on the on the product uh, manufacturing design standpoint, and uh, at the at the the mills where we we make our socks and our um, undershirts, for example, it's amazing. It's literally. You take a disc, you put it into this machine. It'll uh, print out socks, and they come out. They they spit out socks. So it's we're we're not that far from it.
2: So just to be clear, the most famous sock to date uh, in Boston history comes from Kurt Schilling. Do you view him as a competitor?
0: <laughs> yeah, we've uh, we've been you know super focused on uh, our segment, but we have been. Uh, 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 Craig Breslow, one of the, the pitchers for the Red Sox, is actually one of our investors. And uh, he's been very supportive of getting our product on many of the Red Sox players. So, uh,
1: so yeah, we're, we're trying to make our ways into the, the MLB. Awesome. Gihan, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was really great to have you here. Uh, you know, really appreciate all the conversation and learning more about your growth. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on.
2: Thanks so much, guys.
1: And thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of The Growth Show. You can learn more about it at hubspot.com slash podcast. And you can find all the previous episodes in iTunes. Just search for The Growth Show. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love to get a review in iTunes or your podcast directory of choice. Thanks a ton for joining us. And we'll be in another episode next week. Um, okay, now... Uh, I'm terrible with the names. You've probably gotten this before. (laughs) Can we just, um, give me, give me the primer. So it's it's Jihan, uh, that part I got, like that's Uh, awesome. It's it's Gihan, Gihan, sorry. Gihan, yeah. And it's, everything's Uh, phonetic, so if you break it up. Amara Siri Wardena? Wardena. Wardena Wardena. Amara Siri Wardena. Yeah, great. Wow. How did I get second attempt? I got great on that. Come on. That is impossible. Wow. I guess the phonetic thing definitely helps.
2: Yeah. Okay. So Katie, you'll be introducing him. Then? Yeah. Right. <laughs> awesome.